last week, and I'll invite you to turn to the book of Jude. It's the book right before the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It's right before that. It's only one chapter, easily missed. And I didn't write down what page it's on, so I'll trust you'll be able to find that, the book of Jude, an often overlooked and much neglected book of the Bible for most people. But we noted last week how its message of warning to the uh, church in the mid-first century has great application to our own day. As we looked at the entire book by way of introduction, we noted the urgency of the writer, uh, Jude, we believe to be the brother of James, as he himself states, which makes him most agree the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that as he wrote with this urgency, he did so because he was deeply concerned for the saints who were dealing in the churches to which he was writing with false teachers who had come into the church and were corrupting the pure doctrine of the word of God. This is how one writer, as we noted last week, uh, sees what Jude is doing in his letter. He writes, it serves as a warning to every healthy and stable congregation and the Christians of whom they are comprised, calling them to be vigilant so that the blessings they enjoy are not undermined and destroyed without their realizing it. It also serves as an antidote to the kind of error that causes such damage, so that when we find ourselves in the midst of it, we have the ability to understand the false teaching and to deal with it. So last week, by way of introduction, we noticed uh, several or noted several different lessons uh, from the difficulties within the book, which we talked about briefly and which we will answer as we go through the book. But those difficulties remind us that God's word is not always easy for us to understand. It's not always as tidy and clear as we would like it to be. But being God's word, he is faithful to show us all throughout without difficulty of understanding the clear message of the gospel. And that message certainly is very present and powerfully so in the book of Jude. Secondly, we learn from the lessons of the author himself of Jude that being the half-brother of Jesus and having previously, prior to the work of the Spirit in his life, been a man who would have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, now writes as that half-brother of Jesus, transformed by the gospel he had come to believe. And he demonstrated, even in this brief letter, he demonstrated one of the great marks of true Christianity, of every true Christian, which is humility. He calls himself not, oh, by the way, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, but he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave desiring to obey him and to do his will. And then we learn from the recipients, the ones to whom Jude is writing, it is a Catholic universal letter, small c, and because of that, it was dispersed widely to the churches of his day. But notice how he refers to them in verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. His purpose, as we saw so clearly, I think, in John 17, is that they might be reminded of their security in Jesus Christ. All of these terms, called of God, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, is a picture of our security 
And that's really, really important in Jude because he's going to talk about some pretty dangerous things that threaten the very life of the churches to whom he is writing. And so this is a great lesson for us to learn that we need to remember who we are and to refer to ourselves as those who are the called of God, the beloved of God, and those kept for Jesus Christ to be presented to him, as it were, on the last day as a bride adorned for her husband. And so this morning I want to move on, not very quickly because it's a short letter, but just to look at verse 2 this morning, because this powerful sort of salutation or greeting teaches us, I think, many very helpful and profitable things. And so would you stand briefly? I'm still going to ask you to stand for this, the reading of God's word, just the first two verses that God has us uh, study this morning. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. All flesh is indeed as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray now this morning as we study this very brief but powerful text that we would be reminded of the sufficiency of your goodness to us in Jesus. No matter what it is that we are facing or walking through, you have provided for us and you call us to desire even more all that you have given to us in Christ. And so bless your word to our hearing and growth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I recall, uh, recently, I know Pastor Fisher did this as he began his study of 1 Timothy, uh, the pastoral epistles. I know I've said it before on other occasions when we've begun a series in a new book, but, um, you know, when we as pastors come to these books and we look at these verses, the temptation is sort of to lump it all together, move through it fairly quickly. But for Pastor Fisher and for myself, we, we find great value in these verses, as short as they are. Verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, the reason we believe that is because we believe this is God's word. This is the word of the living God, and we believe we are to pay close attention to every single word. Now, why is that? Well, Paul tells us, as he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, you know the verse as well, all of Scripture, all of Scripture, including these very brief, superfluous, seemingly superfluous verses, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we believe with the Bible itself, with what God has said about his word, that it is indeed the word of God. That word God breathed is a very important idea and principle of our faith. That all of this, in the original languages, as God breathed them out, is the very breath and word of God. And so our confession in chapter 1, section 4 of our confession of faith, the authority of Holy Scripture, 
for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Now we believe in what our confession goes on to say is verbal plenary inspiration. All parts in every word in their original languages. The word plenary means full or complete. Therefore, plenary inspiration, verbal inspiration, asserts that God inspired the complete texts of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, including both historical and doctrinal details. The word verbal affirms the idea that inspiration extends to the very words that the writers themselves chose under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This means that when we come to the book of Jude, we come to a book that is wholly inspired by God, that is immediately inspired by God, with God superintending the whole process of the writing of this book in such a way that the writer, Jude, was writing freely and not under any compulsion. He was writing the very things that God himself wanted him to write for his people in that day and in all the days down through the ages, including today. This means that in the book of Jude, God so worked in Jude's life, as we saw wonderfully last week, so as to prepare him to write this very letter which again he did freely as one chosen by God to be an author of one of the books of divine scripture. And the very words again of this book, in their original autographs, the whole of the book was divinely inspired by God himself. So it is the very living word of God. That's what we believe, what we profess, despite what people say, despite their protest that this is an outdated old book that doesn't have any application to our time today. All of that is put away and to the side when we understand the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. This is and forever will be God's everlasting living eternal word. I saw this week, and maybe some of you did, just a scene. I don't even know the context. I know there's been some places around state capitals and even in our nation's capital where people have gathered to publicly read the word of God in order without stop 24 hours a day. That's happening all over the country now. And, and in one of these places, I'm not sure if this was the context, it, it, the, the word was being publicly read. And anytime you do that, you're going to have people protest you. And so what the protesters did is they came, according to this video, and they took out of the hands of those who were reading God's word, they took the Bibles and they began to rip the pages and throw them all over the street. And then strangely, some of them began to eat the very pages they had torn out of the Bible. Now, if you know your Bible, I remembered there were at least three people in the Bible who were commanded by God to eat the scroll Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and John in the book of Revelation. And each one testifies as they ate the scroll, as the Lord had commanded, it became as sweet as honey in their mouths. But John writes, it became in his stomach as something that was bitter to him. We can only pray that those who took and ate those pages would have that experience, that perhaps it became sweet 
to them by God's mercy or bitter to them in God's judgment. The point is, it is the word of God. And we believe that as we come to this text this morning. It's a brief text, divinely inspired immediately by God himself through Jude. Mercy, he says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now, these are far more than just words of greeting. As in every book of the New Testament, almost, we find such words of greeting to those to whom the author is writing. And as in every case, they are there intentionally and they relate to the context of the book. So you might think of these words as we study them this morning, mercy, peace, and love, as simply Jude reminding them of what is already theirs in Christ, what they ought to all the more desire because they are in the midst of great trial and suffering, and they will need to remember mercy and peace and love. And so that's how I want to approach it this morning. Uh, Several things before we look at the words themselves. There are three of them here, mercy, peace, and love. We'll look at them in a second. But the first thing to note is that this really is a very common greeting, a Jewish greeting, in the day in which Jude was living. Some authors say that Jude's inclusion of the word love here, added to mercy and peace, which is the sort of standard common greeting, Uh, is what makes this uniquely a Christian greeting, that Jude came from both a Jewish and Christian background. And so this is very fitting for him to greet the saints in this way with that intent and purpose to cause them to remember and to seek what is already theirs in Christ. The second thing to note in an introductory way is the order in which he includes them. I don't think this is accidental at all. Mercy is the fount where everything begins. We'll talk about that in a moment. Peace is what's the result of that mercy, that through God's mercy, his grace and favor to us, we indeed have peace with God. Love then becomes the enjoyment of the fullness of these things from God and the response of the believing heart towards him. The third thing to note, of course, is that this is more than just a greeting. The inclusion of the word there may, in most translations, tells us that this is in fact a prayer. It is a prayer of Jude on behalf of the believers to whom he writes. And again, consider the context, the need in which they were presented with. They had great trials. They were facing false teachers who had crept in unnoticed, who were wicked men teaching wicked doctrines to steal them away, as it were, from the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. They would need to remember these things. And Jude is simply praying for them, that these graces of God would be multiplied to them. And so at the very outset, what this is teaching us is that our greatest need in this life, no matter where we are, and no matter what it is that we're facing, our greatest need in this life is far different than we often think it is. These three great blessings are things that we should long for as Christians, far more than anything else that this world has to offer, that we might know more and more of the mercy of God, the peace of God, the love of God that he has towards us in Christ. As one writer says, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we desiring these things? Or are there other blessings that we want more than God and the blessings that he gives? 
Do we pray for one another like this? Is it the mercy and love and the blessing of God that we want most for one another in life? Or are the things of this world upon our hearts and what we desire more? You see, the point is that it refocuses our attention at the very beginning of the letter upon what is our greatest need. And so let's look at the three words. They are three graces of God. The first, of course, may the mercy of God. Now, if you're familiar with your Psalter, especially as we sing through the Psalms, you, as we study often in the evenings the Psalms of David and of others, you often hear this cry, Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Have mercy upon me. Mercy is God's willingness to look upon us with pity, to not treat us as our sins deserve. Mercy is the disposition of God towards helpless sinners. That's what mercy is. It's his bent or disposition towards those who cannot help themselves. A pity is a a parallel In the old language, it would be bowels of mercy or bowels of compassion. It would be the tendency, the the very character of God, as he defines in the book of Exodus, that he is a compassionate God towards those who are in need. Now, we are aware of this, of course, as God is pleased to draw us to himself. It starts the process It's the first movement of God towards us to look upon us with compassion or pity because we cannot help ourselves. And because it starts the process, it leads then to the grace that we experience and the willingness of God to pour out the blessings that we need for Christ's sake. Mercy is the awareness of the desperate need of the sinner before a holy and righteous God. Perhaps this is no more clearly seen than in Luke's uh, gospel, chapter 18, the parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know the story. The Pharisee stands in his own self-sufficiency, having no need of God, but at least giving verbal assent to God, acknowledging that he has no needs, essentially, and that he's simply glad he's not like this poor tax collector standing beneath his feet. The picture that Jesus wants us to see is really the mercy of God. He says, Jesus, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the gospel, isn't it? The sinner, aware of his need because of God's work in his life, crying out for mercy to a God who delights to show compassion to weak and foolish and helpless sinners. That is the gospel, and he is a God rich in mercy. You remember in Ephesians chapter 2, as Paul is rehearsing the familiar verses we know from chapter uh, 2, verse 4 through the end, verse 10, that he talks about God's grace. But you remember how it begins in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, 
He's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That reality of our sin and our need does not change, of course, throughout our Christian lives. Every day we cry out to him for mercy. Every day we look to him for mercy. And that's why Jude prays it here. We need his mercy. Calvin rightly points out that if we are wishing for a refined distinction, he says, between mercy and grace, to understand what the difference is, it may be said that grace is the proper effect of mercy. For there is no other reason why God has embraced us in love, but that he pitied our miseries. When he found us lost in our sin, we were miserable creatures, becoming aware in those moments of his gracious work in our lives that we had offended a holy God, that we were not worthy to stand in his presence, to lift up our face to heaven. And in those that condition of our miseries, he showed us mercy. Psalm 103, we read this morning, as a father shows compassion or has bowels of compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. That's mercy, where he sees us as we are, helpless in need of his grace, of his blessing, of his strength, of all the graces that he gives. Matthew Poole calls mercy the fountain of all reconciliation and all of the graces that are promised to us. It's a fountain. Mercy is the fountain out of which every grace that is promised to us in Christ flows to us. Like the psalm says, there is a river coming from the throne of God. It is a river of mercy overflowing with the grace of God to sinners like us. You can see how important it is for us to always, always see ourselves as needy sinners. The problem is we don't like that position. We want to reject it. We want to find ourselves self-sufficient. We want to say, I can do this on my own. This won't be too difficult for me. And in doing so, we forsake all of the blessings, the river of mercy and of grace that flows to us when we stand in our own strength. That's why Jude prays for these. It's not just that they might come to know his mercy in salvation. It's that in their battles, in their life every day, that they might know more and more of his mercy. He adds to this another familiar term, peace. May peace also be multiplied to you. The peace of God flows out of the mercy of God. If the grace of God flows out of that mercy and the reconciling work of God in Christ flows out of that mercy, then the peace, which is a consequence of that mercy, flows out of it as well. And we know the Bible's clear that there are two aspects of this. There are two aspects of this peace. One writer says there are only two books in the whole of the New Testament that don't contain the greeting peace somewhere. It's a rich biblical term. It denotes completeness and soundness and wholeness. It doesn't just mean the absence of enmity with God. It means a friendship with God through his gracious covenant. It entails safety and security, welfare and happiness, 
and it is the gift of Christ. Therefore, Paul writes, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's the reconciliation we now have through Christ that gives us this peace with God. We're no longer at enmity or at war with God because of our sins and are just deserving of his wrath and of his judgment. We are now at peace. So when Jude says, may peace be multiplied, he certainly has in view this sense or idea of the peace that flows out of our reconciliation with Jesus Christ or with God through Christ. But we know the Bible speaks of another kind of peace that is directly connected to it, and that is the peace that we now have in the midst of times of trouble and trial and suffering and chaos. It's why Paul says to the Philippians, don't be anxious for anything, he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. Now, this is different than the reconciling peace that we have through Christ. This is part of the benefit, the blessing of that peace flows out of it, but it's the experience of it in our hearts. And may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it's the peace that we have with God, enmity now destroyed and done away with because of Christ, and the peace that we experience and you're experiencing now, many of you, in the midst of whatever trials you're going through, whatever it is, the, the awareness of the peace of God which keeps you grounded, stable, and able to move forward is the very result of the work of God in Christ. And Jude prays for it, that it would be multiplied to them. And then finally, this word love. Now, that word is, of course, a familiar word. It is agape love here. It's the love of God to sinners like us. It's that self-sacrificing love that we are called to exhibit. But there's some interesting debates among the scholars as to which kind of love is referenced here. Is it God's love to us or our love to God? That's always the question when you find this phrase, love or love of God. I tend to keep it, I think, as most as that which originates with God and flows to us. I think that fits the context, it fits the whole prayer, that all of these things are coming from God to us. There are those who see it differently. Thomas Manton, a wonderful Puritan writer, sees it primarily in the other way, our love to each other. Calvin sees it as both. Calvin often sees both, and that's a good thing because I think both can be seen here. Love here is that love, I believe, which God has shed abroad in our hearts. That's the love of which he speaks. You heard it earlier in Romans 5, read earlier in the service. Not only that, but we rejoice, he says, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character, it produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given unto us. It is the love of God for us in Christ. It's the love of John 17, 23. The love which the Father shows to the Son is the same love to the same degree that he shows to every one of his beloved chosen and called in the Son as well. 
It's the love that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 that the believers would know more and more the love of God in Christ. That you would be able, he writes, to comprehend and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the love Jude here prays. We push it out on every side to all the boundaries of measurement until in our own experience as we live each day in the presence of God, we might know the riches of his love towards us in Jesus Christ. Higher, wider, deeper, longer, and pushed out to infinity on every side. And that love, the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, is being perfected in us. And as it's being perfected, notice what John says. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. We have no fear of punishment now because of what Christ has done. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, this love is what Jude wants the saints to know, along with his peace and with his infinite mercy. Now, there's only one more thing to note about these three terms. I hope you've seen in a broad way, at least, uh, the meaning of these terms, why he prays for them specifically. But there's one other thing to note, and I want you to see it here very clearly. He says, may these things, mercy, peace, and love, be multiplied to us. As I was studying this week, I was reminded through uh, Hendrickson's commentary as I was reading through it, uh, if you know Hendrickson's commentaries, he often will, at the end of each sort of exposition, he'll, he'll kind of go off and speak about some things that relate to what he's talking about. And he brought back to my memory by his writing what we all remember as early childhood students in school, right? We learn our addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Some of our kids right now are learning those things. We begin, of course, with addition, right? One plus one equals two. Children, two plus two equals four. Three plus three equals six. Four plus four equals eight. And on and on we go. By the time we're done that, including subtraction, we think, boy, I've got this mastered. This is great. And then comes, at least in my day, I don't know if you still do it, your times tables, your multiplication tables, and suddenly you realize, okay, one times one is one. Two times two is four. Seems the same. Three times three is, oh, nine. Four times four is 16. Five times five is 25. I could go on, trust me, but I won't. <laughs> I know my times tables. But you'll very quickly get to really high numbers. Really quickly. So the language here is intentional, isn't it? Judas praying, not that it would be added to us. Adding is wonderful. Multiplied to us. Everything to us in Christ is multiplied. That we might know more and more and more of it. Every day. That's a wonderful thought. I thought that was an amazing uh, sort of insight. That, that the multiplication process is what Jude is interested in. Not just simply addition. But multiplied. And know this, he says, one writer, in the process, it's not going to be a meager existence. 
It's going to be a lavish existence because as you go through this all the time, God is going to be multiplying whatever mercy you need, whatever peace you need, whatever love you need. And I will tell you this, the more of that you need, the more of it you will experience. Now, if that doesn't charge you up to get on this life, I don't know what would. Apostasy, the context of Jude, is present in the church and it's going to get worse. It's bad now. You have nothing to fear. You are secure in Jesus. And more than that, you're not just called and loved and kept, but as you indicate your willingness to be faithful, you're going to have the multiplication of everything you need of God's mercy, of God's peace, and of God's love. Isn't that amazing? Whatever you need, there's an inexhaustible supply of riches, the Bible says to us, because God's math is multiplication, not merely addition. We've already mentioned that one of the two aspects, fascinating aspects of this book of Jude is its relationship and similarity to the book of 2 Peter. 15 of Jude's verses are found in the book of 2 Peter. And so we believe Jude was probably written first and then Peter expanding upon what Jude had already written and adding to it under God's inspiration is probably what happened. Through this similarity, we get some wonderful insights into the mind of God as he divinely and immediately inspired both writers to write down his word, even as they were writing to two very different groups of people yet all having in common their being true believers in Christ. For they were called, sanctified by God the Father, preserved and kept for Jesus Christ. And so Peter begins his second letter this way. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's that humility again, a servant. To those who have obtained a faith equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Peter talks about multiplying as well. In fact, if you read the Bible carefully as you go through and reading through the year and each of the books, especially of the New Testament, you will see this idea of the multiplication of the mercies of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question as we end. Is there anything that God has withheld from us as his dear children Anything at all that he has not given to us? The answer, of course, is no. There is a treasure house of blessings that God has given to each one of us who know Jesus Christ full to overflowing with all that we have need of in this life and in the life to come. There is nothing withheld from us who believe that he, that he has already given them to us, his own son, how will he not also, Paul says, give us all things? We are rich beyond measure, the Bible says, and beyond comparison. 
There is nothing in all that God has purposed for us in Christ that we do not already possess by right. For all that is his is ours as those whom he has brought near by his blood. All the riches of his grace are ours and flow freely to us. Now, while all of this is true, we also know that being sinners, we are prone to forget these benefits and these blessings. And we certainly don't live in the experience of them every day. And so the answer is also yes. There are still things for us to enjoy, for us to experience, that we might enjoy a richer, fuller, deeper experience of that mercy, love, and grace, and peace, and grow in godliness and devotion to Christ. It's the reason why Jude prays what he prays, not that they don't already possess it by right, but that they might experience it, enjoy it, know it within their very soul day by day, and then in return give gratitude and praise to God for all the blessings that are ours in him. The Lord may be calling you to a new thing, a new trial, a difficult providence, or perhaps he's been pleased to allow you to remain in a long-standing place of suffering that is hard, difficult, makes you question, wonder if tomorrow you'll be able to bear up under it at all. Or perhaps he's calling you to something unexpected that catches you off guard and causes you to be filled with fear and worry. What's the answer? May the mercy and peace and love of God be multiplied to you. Thomas Manton said, there is a holy covetousness in spiritual things. What he means by that, it's perfectly all right to long for and to even covet the promises of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the peace of God, the love of God. This is a holy longing for more and more of what God has promised to us and has given to us in Christ. And this morning, I simply ask you, is this the desire of your heart? Do you want more of this? That's what Jude prayed, that these believers would want more of it, more of it according to their need. As we close, we're going to sing the final hymn, which is a great Reformation hymn. It's the most famous one. It's based on Psalm 46, it's written by Martin Luther. And as we celebrate and remember God's work in the Reformation, we remember that Psalm 46 is a wonderful psalm. It speaks of the confidence that we have in God in the face of many troubles from within and from without. God, the psalmist tells us, is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. The men of the Reformation, men like Wycliffe and Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, and so many others, less familiar names to us, but many men and women God used in those days were saints who knew what Jude wrote of so long ago and were enabled to stand in the face of great persecution, even the threatening of their very lives from those within the church at that time. They knew the mercy of God to sinners. You read their works and they confess at the outset that they are poor and helpless sinners in need of God's mercy. 
They knew of the peace of God that comes through Christ, which gave them, which gave them courage to stand in the face of great persecution. And they knew the love of God that was poured out in their hearts. And they lived by that, and they longed for more of it. They knew that these graces were multiplied to them in Christ, for they had received grace upon grace upon grace in Jesus. And this awareness is expressed in so many different ways in all of their writings, in the great themes of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, by faith alone, solus Christus, in Christ alone, sole deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. So we remember those days. But what we're remembering is what Jude says here. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you all. Let us pray. Father, we are a people so richly blessed, so richly blessed, without measure in Jesus. And that makes us long more and more for the experience of these things in our daily lives. And so with Jude, we would pray for ourselves and for one another. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to us all, we ask. Cause us to stand firm in our day, to contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. Even as we remember these great truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.